Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's The Wonky Show, and it's Tefmas for universities in England, so we'll be asking if the prizes still glitter, discussing the talent pipeline for the sector itself, and digging into the so-called New Deal for PGRs. It's all coming up. Potentially parents might be more interested, but it's not a part of the decision-making process for, for any applicant that I've met. And, you know, my charity works with 25,000 kids a year. I don't think we've had a single question or query about TEF since it's been in existence. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news policy analysis. I'm Wonky's editor-in-chief, Mark Leach, and joining me to hand out the policy medals this week are three titans of higher education policy. In Buckinghamshire is Jonathan Simons, partner and head of the education practice at Public First. Jonathan, your highlight of the week, please. Morning, Mark. Morning, everyone. Highlight of the week, we are doing some really interesting work with the Office of Students looking at collaborative outreach. And as part of that, the team has been fanning out across the country, talking to UniConnect partnerships, universities, schools and everything. So it's absolutely fascinating to, uh, to be on the ground and hear what's going on. In Essex is Anne-Marie Canning, Chief Executive of The Brilliant Club. Anne-Marie, your heart of the week, please. Hello. Yeah, it's got to be a conversation I had with a head teacher at Wembley High Technology College on Monday, doing amazing things for the kids that they serve and just boundless optimism, which felt very refreshing in this in this day and age. Lovely. And in North London, it's Debbie McVitie, editor of Wonky. Debbie, your heart of the week, please. Well, it's got to be the launch of the Higher Education Festival programme, which has been a bit of a labour of love, of love over the last couple of months. But the full programme is now available online. There's going to be still still more content and speakers added in the weeks to come, but we've, we've broken the back of it, which makes me extremely happy. And I really hope that those who've got a ticket for the festival will be excited to see what's in store. So, yes, we start the week with Tef. Debbie, walk us through what's happened. At about 40 minutes ago, at the time of recording, we got the Tef rankings. 228 providers got their medals today, but actually of those 228, 53 are still pending. So that means that when they got their provisional ratings a month ago, they, they went back to OFS and kind of asked questions about that. And those that process and conversation is, is clearly still still in train. The TEF this time around is a little bit different. Each provider gets two ratings, one for student experience and one for student outcomes, and then an overall rating that takes account of both. These ratings are based on assessment by TEF panels, both of institutional metrics, including NSS and, and, and student outcome metrics around retention and employability and so on, and also on an institutional qualitative submission, which we will be diving into, no doubt, in the months ahead. Key message here, I think, is really about diversity of excellence. 46 providers got gold, 100 got silver, 29 got bronze. And there's really no kind of pattern here that we can see so far. You know, big providers, small providers, providers in different parts of England, research intensive providers, post-92, new providers. There's, you know, there, there's excellence absolutely everywhere. One other kind of novelty about this iteration of TEF is, was this category of requires improvement. And there are 
a handful of providers who have had requires improvement in one of their categories, but nobody got it across the board. So unless, unless of course, that's where some of this, some of these pending conversations are. But we can see we've not seen kind of enormous use of, of that as as, as, a, as a sort of stick that that it was perhaps threatened at the time of of, of developing this this round of the TEF. Right, lots to dive into here, Jonathan. No providers have got requires improvement overall. Has OFS bottled it? I don't think they've bottled it. No, because you know universities will have spent a huge amount of time and effort on this, and indeed having spoken to a few and 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 sort of understood how they're putting in their submissions. There's a huge amount of work has gone into it, and I think it is probably reasonable to say that across the board, across the whole of provision, because of course the unit of assessment is the provider. I think it is fair to say that there isn't a university in this country where you know the whole university requires improvement. Which is not to say that there's not elements of it, and indeed that's one of the potential weaknesses of the TEF is that if you are a very very large university, you could potentially easily have you know courses or degree subjects or indeed whole faculties which are not quite where you'd want them to be, and and, and TEF wouldn't necessarily pick that up. I do think the interesting thing though is how many have appealed. I mean the whole principle of having an appeal is itself interesting. You know there's lots of regulators which don't give you an appeal. The judgment is a judgment is a judgment. But 53 having appealed and you have to sort of think that they are presumably towards the lower end otherwise why would you bother appealing that's a very large proportion of the sample that is not happy so either the OFS hasn't done it very well or they have done it very well and the university doesn't like what the answers are but there's some interesting names in there that are in the uh, that are in the pended column as to, as of today yeah that's going to be that's going to be fascinating to see yes i think the really interesting thing about that, those those providers that show up as pending is that they're not necessarily the sort of providers that you know if you weren't kind of thinking too carefully about it you might expect so you might you might think that providers that have maybe perhaps traditionally struggled to achieve the sorts of outcomes that the OFS says it wants, or providers that perhaps don't have a great, you know, sort of don't have as good a reputation, might be the ones in the pending column. That's not actually the case. There's lots, you know, there's quite a few providers in there that have a fantastic reputation, have you know, have, have scored well in previous iterations of the exercise. So I do wonder whether there's a. Um, I think it will be really interesting to see where that where that whole kind of question lands. Do we know when do we know when we're going to get these uh, these final results? I mean, presumably when when the process is concluded. I don't know if there's a kind of timeline on that. So, Anne-Marie, do, do students care what, what prospective students, do they care what, what TEF results the universities are looking at get? I've never spoken to a single student or applicant who's asked me about TEF. It's just not part of the conversation in terms of how young people make their decisions. Do think that parents are probably more interested, especially now we've got the requires improvement category. I mean, 25% of institutions who've taken part have got potentially that categorisation and are appealing it. I think it's a shame that they haven't all been published together because obviously this will be the splash and this will be the thing that people pay attention to and then those sort of appeals will trickle out later. So I think potentially parents might be more interested but it's not a part of the decision making process for for any applicant that I've met and you know my charity works with 25,000 kids a year. I don't think we've had a single question or query about TEF since it's been in existence. Mm -hmm. This is one of those things isn't it on Wonky you know we've had you know for years people saying it's it's so unfair you know the TEF it's got to be benched marked otherwise it doesn't doesn't make any sense you know lots and lots of it's gonna be so unfair inside the sector and so then they go and, and benchmark it all which makes it kind of you know makes all the wonks happy but it does sort of make a bit less sense doesn't it to the person on the street yeah it does and this has always been you know the joke in the early days of TEF was that it measured everything apart from actual teaching excellence and as as with all of these things it's it's grown and got more complicated in in subsequent iterations and and, and AMC's right it's not it's not actually a 
of much use to prospective students. But I, I don't think that's the same as saying it doesn't have a value. If Even if its only value was to force universities to devote resources to thinking about this, to articulating what they're doing, to articulate what they're doing on behalf of their current students and future students, and indeed to take action when presumably all of the internal work they do beforehand where they sort of score themselves says, you know, gosh, we really need to improve area A and area B and area C. Even if it just has that internal function, that in and of itself is fine. The publication, of course, ensures that universities do take effort about it, so, so there is a need to publish it. But I think it can have a value, even as, as AMC says, your, your average 18-year-old is not particularly going to be looking at it when he or she is deciding where to go. Yeah, I mean, that was certainly what the... Pierce review find this the independent review of TEF, which was the review that led to this iteration, was that the effort expended inside universities on thinking about teaching prompted by the TEF, and certainly that mirrors some of the conversations we've had as well, was was seen as genuinely valuable, and particularly for those staff in universities, such as those, you know, work in education development who are kind of passionate about teaching, you know, suddenly find their voices being heard in conversations in ways that might not have so much been the case in the past. So I think I think there's something to be said where where that I think where that conversation kind of is 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 productive and and, and kind of has outcomes but I think this, one of the other things that struck me was the institutions and I think I could only spotted five but of course this was very done very quickly and three of them are in London two in the Midlands that either had bronze for student experience and gold for outcomes or gold for student experience and bronze for outcomes and I think that it's it's quite interesting where you see divergence between that the score for, the score for student experience and for outcomes because I guess it's the only real acknowledgement anywhere in the quality system as it currently stands that the two might not be so directly linked as elsewhere it's presumed you know it's possible to have a fantastic student experience to deliver really high quality teaching in the kind of in the sort of world of TEF but still struggle with your student outcomes and I think that's I think that's a sort of interesting position for an institution to be in. I think that's really interesting, Debbie, because if you're not a TEF ultra, the difference in how the data is presented this year is, is quite is quite a lot, actually. So if you think, you know, TEF used to be about medals, well, now you've got this really interested sort of tessellated grid. It's almost like a puzzle and it's shown you the, the different elements and how they lock together. And, and so you can start to see those patterns, Debbie. And I do think that might be of more interest to applicants because they can sort of discern between the different parts that relate to uh, you know the course or, or the institution they're thinking about so it, it is really different and so if you're listening and you're not one of those people who's been following TEF avidly I'd highly recommend having a look at like the visual layout of what a TEF award looks like now. Who is listening to a wonky podcast about TEF that is not a TEF ultra right we are we are speaking to quite a niche audience here. I, I wouldn't categorize myself as a TEF ultra um, <laughs> although it's probably a source of pride for some people on this call. <laughs> true, true story uh, Jim was in a cab a black cab in London a couple of years ago and the guy was chatting to him asked him what he does and things and uh, Jim was like oh you know we do a, we just write about universities or something and he was like, oh yeah well, what about specifically anyway he said he got he got to the the, the meter he was like oh it's called wonky because he kept being pushed by the cab driver and he was like oh yeah read it every, read it every week mate um, <laughs> my daughter's going to uni in September love it and, I mean it's amazing I don't think I think that's pretty rare but like for the fact that happens I mean yeah anyway wonderful quite yeah, literally you've quite literally hit the black cab driver test yeah. <laughs> tef ultra tef tef pro max we could keep going with the uh the, the award inflation i mean in front of my eyeballs right now in every single social media channel everything it's been less than an hour since the tef results out obviously every every provider in the kingdom has um, or the nation rather has 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 lined up their uh, their pr about this in advance but every single thing and obviously because i follow a lot of higher education channels but everything is uh, tef results particularly if you've got gold and silver or you've got you know you've got gold or silver in one category and then how that compares against uh, the other universities you don't like 
Um, it's 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 going to be a, a few days of this and lots of balloons on campus and and all of that, which is great because obviously um, morale helps with morale on campus. And as Debbie says, you know, despite some of the flaws in the process and the data, it does recognise a lot of good work and a lot of hard work. But I guess this is where I, I'm just interested to know kind of where people think the all this ends. Is this the sector talking to itself, or is this you know is this kind of is this a message that there you know this, you know actually what we do is 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 pretty good and maybe maybe the government should think about actually funding the, the cost of it <laughs> um you know who's the who's the who's the audience for all of the you know gold and silver balloons floating high above campuses well i mean i think ultimately it's it's for current students and of course it's 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 open day in some spaces so it's for prospective students as well and again i don't think that's a bad thing i think you know for all that people can 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 poke in and around the weeds and say well of course you know this data's four years old and this is benchmarked and this only applies to the provider level rather than subject level you know all of those things are true but nonetheless if you're at a university today that has scored gold overall or even gold in one of the subcategories you should be proud you should be happy the students who go there should be proud and happy and frankly it's no bad thing if you you know if you uh, splash out some cash on some nice gold balloons and put them all over the student union building i'm very happy with that right well you can read a lot more about tef the results all the data you can shake a stick at on wonky.com we're publishing several rounds of that over the next few days so please do uh, follow the links in the show notes if you want to dig a bit deeper. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, I'm Nikki Gustav, and this week on Wonky, I've been blogging about the Office for Students new pilot survey, which asks students about the prevalence of sexual misconduct in higher education. We have commissioned our FF research to deliver the survey, which has been carried out at 13 higher education providers. All students will be invited to complete the survey, which will ask them about their experiences with sexual misconduct, how these experiences have affected their lives and studies, and their experiences of using the reporting mechanisms in their university. The survey will improve our understanding at a national level of the scale and nature of sexual misconduct within higher education. This will help highlight areas where universities and colleges can develop their approaches to best support students. My blog explores how we researched and designed a survey and the considerations for students and being asked about this sensitive and often difficult topic. We'd like to thank all of the higher education providers who have volunteered to participate. Right, there's a new report out that we've been a part of all about the sector needs for its future talent pipeline. And marie walk us through it. Thanks, Mark. Fascinated by this as a former university staffer. So, report by Wonky, conducted for Advanced HE, has looked at the skills that universities need for their staff. It's got some really interesting findings. Universities are increasingly looking outwards, looking at research impact, enterprise graduate employability, internationalisation, folks who are really skilled at engaging with local places. And so, what does that mean for us in terms of organisational development in our universities? New ways of thinking, new ways of working, new ways of training people up, getting people working across an institution, thinking about how we help staff to understand the values of an organisation, a whole range of, of things we need to take into account. So the report is called Looking Outward, the Changing People Needs of Higher Education in the Years Ahead. Really interesting methodology, interviews with heads of institution all around the world, and a lot of interviewees have really focused in on this idea around distributed leadership, which is interesting and difficult to achieve. Uh, so rather than the sort of typical 
typical bureaucratic, you know, heavy duty top leadership approach, there's a real sea change in people seeking a distributed approach to how they lead their institutions. So there's a nice piece on the Wonky website by Advance HE's exec, Alison Johns. You can read more about her thoughts on the report there. This has been, yeah, this really fascinating report to be a part of. And and Debbie, I mean, we, you know, we, we interviewed vice chancellors for for this to understand their, their thinking. One of the things that struck me most about doing that was when we got in touch to ask about future skills needs for universities, almost to a person, people assume we're talking about students and, and graduates. Even even though we sent loads of briefing material and even up to the point where we sit down and, and actually have these interviews, I think because there's just been such little focus on the sector itself and its own talent pipeline that people are just not used to talking about it. So that was, you know, it was kind of almost people were surprised. And that said to me that, you know, there was a, that was a really good reason to do this work, right? Yeah. And I think when you when you get into the conversation, you, you realise how much heads of institution really are thinking about their people. So, you know, they're really, really thinking, how do I get my institution? How do I create the kind of culture in my institution in which people can perform, do their jobs, connect with each other in a meaningful way, you know, move the institution forward, feel like they, you know, feel like their voices are heard and they're included, in, you know, all that sort of stuff. But, but yes, they don't necessarily think of it as being about kind of projecting future skills needs. So the, and I think the other thing is, of course, heads of institution are very mindful that there are some really quite serious skills challenges in the sector. And I'm talking about things like, you know, you know, dig- digital and, and that sort of thing, HR, finance, where it is, it is just, you know, it is just hard for universities to be competitive. Some of the sort of geographically kind of remote, some of them are, are competing with kind of, you know, very, very large global global organisations. So, so, you know, there are, there are genuine areas that I think are preoccupying heads of institutions' mind. But yes, I think one of the kind of findings of the report is, is that we don't, you know, hesitate to kind of, you know, get involved in a bit of Columbus syndrome here. It's like, well, I've never seen it, so it doesn't exist. I'm sure there are colleagues across the sector thinking really, you know, really hard about organisational development. But the, I think that there is, a, I think, surfacing some of that conversation about how do universities learn? How do, how do you know, how do, how do, how do you develop an organisation as complex and as distinctive as a university? And beginning, you know, and you can sort of see heads of institutions kind of sort of think think their way into that into that kind of space of saying, how do we how do we move forward? How do we de- how do we grow the skills we need? And so, yes, I think perhaps that language isn't, isn't very well established in the public conversation. Although I know there are lots of people who are really really thinking about it. Jonathan, what jumped out what jumped out from the report at you? Because one of my one of my kind of worries is about how more of a comment in the question. One of my worries is about how universities are perceived from from the outside world from four different quarters. And I think you know if you if you look at a lot of the popular press about universities, it's you know obviously covers the ongoing industrial disputes which we have several of every single year pretty routinely now look at social media you see a lot of academics complaining about workload and those sorts of things often often justifiably and casualization of of labor in general in inside higher education we've talked about this before on the, on the show i guess really interested in your perspective about kind of f- how the sector is is perceived when it comes to talent how could it improve itself how could it how could it improve that perception should vice chancellors actually be doing taking forward some of these ideas about about talent it's a really interesting question, and I was really struck by what we were just talking about earlier. When you know you went out to heads of institution and, and, and talked about talent development, and the implicit assumption is that we were talking about students because that has been the dominant discourse, and we've mm. been talking about employability metrics for students, and, and of course universities are partly measured on how many students you know go on and get successful outcomes. So I think staff development generally has been slightly underplayed within within the discourse. I think honestly, from an external perspective, 
Um, I'm afraid to say, I think most people think that university staff, to the extent that they think about it at all, think that it's probably okay. Because everything that you expect about who gets trained, who gets developed, who gets paid and how, suggests that university staff, almost all of whom, certainly on the academic side, have, you know, not just degrees, but higher degrees. Obviously, professional services staff is slightly different. You know, are, again, the perception is mostly relatively well paid, mostly on sort of fairly well, well-established contracts. And you know, outside of HE, all the data says those are the people who get training. If you look at the broader debate around skills and organisational development in the workforce and, you know, the kind of the agonising over why we as a UK economy haven't improved our productivity, who gets training, how does that happen? The features of people who get training from their employer are they tend to be young, they tend to have a degree, and they tend to be kind of relatively affluent. And they're the people who, who get the training. So most people would assume that the same applies in universities. Now, I'm not saying for a second, and indeed we're going to talk about this later, that there isn't a huge kind of casualization and, and, and precarious nature of employment uh, in higher education amongst professional staff and academic staff as well. So I think the the outside picture is not representative of reality. And as I say, one of the reasons I think this report is so important is because it does allow universities to think about how they can best develop their staff, both academic and professional services staff. And in particular, as the report said, a lot of staff now in a university are externally facing. And that has been a relatively recent development, you know, even, even 10 years ago. You wouldn't have said that was the case for most staff. I think it is indisputably the case now, as well as obviously from the digital side of things. And that does require a a, a member of staff to have a a slightly different skill set. No, I think a lot of it rings true. You know, the Brilliant Club's got 100 staff and and these are some of the sort of issues we're thinking about and have a sort of developed response to already. You know, if you just think about it, you know, attracting and retaining great staff is really important for a university. And I I spoke to one university recently who said, why would they come and work for me rather than you? And I think that's a really interesting question for the sector. Why would you want to become professional services at a British university? And and what's the offer there? And I think probably the offers changed over the past few decades, right, Jonathan? I think they used to be seen as like safe, and I'm going to say it, relatively easy jobs compared to other sectors. I don't think that's the case now. And that's why we've got to be upskilling people helping folks to develop, thinking about talent management and and how we handle the talent in in universities so that we can deliver great experiences for students. I will say some of this, universities are coming a little bit late to the game. So if we think about, for example, distributed leadership, that has been a big thing in schools and colleges for a long, long while now. So this idea that you have an empowered layer of middle managers who can really crack on and do the job and sort of implement your organisational strategy for you, that has been, I mean, that's just de rigueur in, in most schools that are doing pretty well in the UK. So some of it, it feels like the sector's coming to it quite late. What I will say is the report is really refreshing. It's packed full of quotes from vice-chancellors where I think they're being really honest. They're saying really interesting things. And so for me, it feels like a very hopeful report and it feels like quite dynamic and bouncy as well. I, I get the sense that this is a sector that's like really rising to the challenge of making sure staff are recruited, developed and can go on to do great things for, for students and their institutions. What really struck me, um, you know, that, that thing about distributed leadership, I just find so fascinating because it's that question about saying, how do you, how do you, how do you, imp- it's partly about empowering people to get on and do the job. And it's partly about saying, no, you have a responsibility. Stop pushing everything up the chain. I do think something one vice chancellor said was there there can be the situation where at the kind of senior team everybody should particular vice chancellor was talking about equality and diversity.
university in this context, which I think is you know quite important actually, is the the senior team. Everyone is bought into this. We're all kind of we're all, we're all, we're all gunning for this kind of this agenda, but we know it's not being necessarily being felt on the ground, and that is mm-hmm. because you know we we haven't done enough with our middle mid level leaders. And I do think that perhaps you know for some university staff, were they to read this report, they would kind of go, "This is not this. Does, I I do not recognise this language, this way of thinking in my mm-hmm. institution." Yeah, and I think you know, and there is that because we know, of course, you know, these are large complex institutions. You know, not everyone is having a great experience, and not everyone kind of sees that there is this kind of you know in- strategic intention coming from the top. And and that really is about that that distribution of leadership. So that seems to me to be the absolutely kind of core thing for universities to focus on. And certainly that was what we heard from the people that we interviewed. And and I wonder, you know, if people sort of really have a true grasp on what distributed leadership looks and feels like, because sounds great. Yeah. Give loads of power to your middle man- managers. Wonderful. Well, those middle managers, and, and that, that's a particularly uncomfortable phrase for me as well, I have to say, you know, they need a bundle of autonomy. And with that autonomy, they have to have some capacity to do the thing they're meant to do. And then finally, they have to have accountability as well. Those are the three component parts of distributed leadership. And I wonder how well the term is understood across the sector. One of the things I hope this doesn't lead to is a resurgence of the kind of academic versus professional staff argument, because you hear this quite a lot, don't you, that actually one of the reasons why it, it's tougher and people don't have enough autonomy is because there's processes and there's regulation. And, you know, we used, to have, we used to just have the academy and people doing scholarship. And now there's, you know, there's all these people that don't even have a PhD and they're just doing all this professional services stuff and they're, they're silting up the system. And that's why people just can't get on with things. And of course, the truth is that universities are immensely complex organisations that turn over, you know, hundreds of millions. Some of them turn over well over a billion. Of course, you need a bunch of people who are managing, in the broader sense of the word, those institutions. So there's a reason why we've had a natural accretion of professional services staff over the years, and and it's right that that continues. But as AMC said, alongside that, you have to have a sense of distributed leadership. And this is did that was the one thing that really struck me because this is this is not a new observation. And as AMC said, lots of other public sector organisations, NHS as well as schools, have been doing this for a while. You know, to a greater or lesser degree of success. But it is it really is in some ways an observation that most of the rest of the public sector stumbled on a little while ago. Yeah. I think. I think- and that, I think the point, the, point, the point about that as well, Jonathan, is this part of the thing is about connecting across the institution. You know, so you just cannot have this world where you've got you know academics doing academic things, and your professionals doing professional things, and a sort of uneasy kind of tension or, or kind of you know cordiality when the two come together. You know, how do you as a leader really connect these different functions? Have people working across those functions even? You know, mm-hmm. that kind of third space professional piece. Um, you know, reimagine career paths in such a way as as people are less focused. On, to be perfectly honest, I mean, you know, inevitably, inevitably some people are going to be very, very focused on kind of the core research mission and so on and so forth, but kind of less about kind of siloing people into kind of different different bits of things and everyone just gets on with their, their job on a day-to-day basis and start thinking about saying, we have institutional goals here that require us all to come together and use our skills collectively. And that is genuinely a really challenging way of thinking. And the way that you do things is by kind of getting everyone into room and having a committee meeting about it. You know, there's, there's, you know, there's a potential for a real cultural change here if people are prepared to grasp that nettle. Debbie, there were two bits in the report that I thought were fascinating. One, the example from one of the Thai universities where academics go on to lead professional services functions. And I thought that was absolutely fascinating. I don't know if I've got an example of that in, in UK higher education. And then the second bit, which I really loved, which is sort of like a, an antidote to committee culture, was De Montford, these campus collectives that they run, which bring together academics, professional services staff, probably students as well, as I, I imagine, around sort of common themes and sort of working across campus on those common themes. And I thought both of those were really interesting ideas to take away. Right, you can read that full report, uh, links in the show notes. And now it's time for the Hidden History of Higher Education with Mike Ratcliffe. 
Expanding our universities is one of those things that has been an issue all the way through the history. How do we how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the fact that there comes a point where government needs to expand our universities uh, and think about how it wants to organise that? Now, less so in a market type system, but when we had planning bodies, how should we do that? Now, the biggest set of expansion came straight after the Second World War where um, they knew in advance that returning students were going to come back. Um, either they'd already gone off to war, they'd been off into a variety of different occupations, and they were going to want to have higher education. The Americans handled this through their uh, GI Bill, um, but we set about just expanding our universities. And the interesting bit is they started planning for this in act, you know, active way in 1943. So before we've even invaded Normandy, the British university sector is planning to have won the war and how it's going to cope with all the students who are going to come back. So excellent planning from the UGC. Um, and off it goes. It works out that actually it doesn't really need to expand the number of universities because most of the universities it's been funding have been really small all the way through the 30s. Um, again, if we think we have trouble now, try running a university through the Great Depression when most of the students have to pay their fees. So they've not expanded as much as they thought, so they were ready for them all to expand. The only difference is that um, the chair of the UGC, Walter Mobley, is persuaded uh, to let the University College of North Staffordshire start. And so A.D. Lindsay uh, persuades him that it would be a really good idea to set up a new kind of university. And Mobley is very concerned about um, how the war has gone, how it's impacted on universities, and he thinks we need new types of students. Uh, and so they're allowed to run a four-year course, predominantly residential, um, uh, an opportunity to have a foundation course at the minute. So it's trying to do something different. And they get going and everyone else starts to expand. And then we go through the 50s, just slowly upgrading universities. So the university colleges become universities. They all expand. There's a bit of a backlash if you think about um, Kingsley Amis and Lucky Jim and his more means worse thing. Um, but generally, this is the idea that we can continue. By the end of the decade, it's clear we need more universities. They exceed to a bid from Sussex to set up a new university college at Brighton. But then, um, having got to that stage, they have a pause and think it's probably worth having a think about setting up new types of universities. And then starts this marvellous thing, this bidding competition to have universities. They set up a subcommittee. Great and the good come on the subcommittee. They happily uh, sit together and work out what they should do. Now, people have been writing in saying, hello, can I have a university for a while now? So they've got a file already of towns and cities that said, can we have a university, please? So they're ready to go. So they've got a, a group of people they can contact and say, are you still interested in having a university? And they work out what the criteria are for having a good university. It needs plenty of land in order to expand. It needs to have good access to schools so that staff uh, will come and let their kids um, go to those schools. Um, it needs to have a certain amount of industry nearby and communications to other universities. But there's no kind of fixed uh, idea of what they should do. They also don't have a fixed idea of where they should be so they just let the applications come in and then sort them out so um, different local authorities spring up with ideas and write in sending in their different um, uh, bids some from rather unlikely places so for quite a long time the one making the running in the northwest was Blackpool we're going to have the University of Blackpool um, that attracted quite a lot of uh, comment because Blackpool was a slightly challenging place um, and so people uh, you know, had different views on this uh, and the best bit of that is someone who cheerfully wrote into the UGC saying um, I think um, he says 
I beg to strongly oppose the current suggestion that a university for the northwest of England should be established at or on the outskirts of Blackpool. A university is supposed to be a place where young people absorb culture and learning, not spiffery and paganism. And he goes on to say that he can't imagine a worse place to put a university apart from Soho. Uh, and now it turns out that uh, Lancashire um, starts to move more in the direction of uh, uh, Lancaster itself. Um, they acquire some land at Bellrig and Lancaster gets a nod over Blackpool. But we go through these independent writing in exercises. So there's a, um, a businessman who's driving past Stamford in Lincolnshire. Uh, uh, and he hears that um, the, the people of Stanford might be quite interested in having a university. They're one of the places that had a, a university suppressed in the Middle Ages. And he gets really involved in this. Uh, and he effectively becomes the leading light of this constant bid to have a university for Stanford. And they get quite a long way down the, the thinking. One of the key reasons is that Stanford's uh, got a new bypass, so it's got plenty of land. Uh, it's been redeveloped, and you can think about having a university. And there's a whole published report on why it would be a good thing for the University of Stanford. Stanford to get going. Uh, and these keep going through. So there's a, a bid for uh, a university at Glastonbury. Uh, this nice chap writes in and says it'd be great to build a new university city of Avalon next to Glastonbury um, and create a new university city. Uh, now he doesn't get anyone else supporting him, but there on the UGC file is his nice letter and the very polite letter back from the uh, the civil servants of the UGC saying, well, that's that's very interesting. Do, do follow up with some more details. So you go through the kind of stages and and there is a long list of places that at some point are considered to have a new university some of whom that's fine they get they go and get their university so we have uh bids from bournemouth and carlisle and chatham and chester and uh there's uh, one from coventry which is obviously quite successful but plymouth and salisbury and stanford and stevenage and thanet thanet is one of the ones that makes one of the early running again uh, but in the end is is passed over in terms of of canterbury so you get this kind of wonderful pickup of these things and the files are just great as you go through them uh, and you get this different information sent in by these people trying to say well can we have a university place so the best correspondence i found on the file is from the swindon people so the swindon people start by this very apologetic apologetic letter from the town clerk saying um people in swindon have asked me to write i'm not sure personally about doing this um but but what's the process um, and then he kind of gets more into it and the Swindon say, well, one of the things we want to do is, is deal with the fact that there's a perception that we're quite a dreary town and a university might be quite good for us. So they, they kind of talk about how this might go through. And his correspondence backwards and forwards uh, goes on and on over about four years because because they don't quite get going in time. Uh, and slowly, you know, it's clear that other people are getting their universities um, but but they're not. So by the end, when it's quite clear that there aren't going to be any more universities, this is this is sad little letter in from the town clerk uh, to the UGC. Um, Please do not groan too deeply when you receive this letter. I'm not going to harass you. I know that nothing can be done until the government announcement has been made about new universities. Uh, and he goes on to say, well, we've, we, perhaps we could use a new bit of land. It might be a better bet for, for our new Swindon University. Uh, and he ends it in a sad little sign-off. Now, please don't toss this into the waste paper basket. Now, the good news is that it was all dutifully considered by the UGC. It's still lovingly kept on the file. Uh, Swindon did not get to have its university. Uh, the cut-off had come and the government had changed 
changed its mind on how many universities it wanted. Because at that point, um, the uh, new Labour government decides, that's it, no more universities, uh, we're going to stop uh, approving them, we've got enough students uh, into the planning period, uh, and, uh, and we'll have no more. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Right, there's a new deal for PGR students. Jonathan, walk us through it. That's right, Mark. So government first set out their plans for this new deal for postgraduate researchers in July 2021. This was a part of a wider people and culture strategy for the R&D sector full stop. Following that, UKRI put out a call for evidence about what this new deal might consist of, and they've now responded to this this week with various different proposals. The headline is a big uplift to the stipend for UKRI-funded researchers, which is about 20% of all PGRs, and that's a 20% uplift to the minimum stipend which they're going to have. And that is actually, I think, a, a pretty big deal. Various other things that are in the responses looks at the way in which PGRs are supported, both financially and more broadly. There's a lot in there about EDI. There's a lot in there about sort of support for doctoral students. There's a really fascinating thing about part-time study, whereas at the moment, if you're a UK-funded, UKRI-funded PGR, you can either opt to study full-time or you can study half-time. But there's absolutely no flexibility for either between those two stools. And there's some really interesting observations on what that might mean. It's pretty safe to say that this, this is been received quite well by the sector. So University Alliance have welcomed it. Russell Group has welcomed it. Jim has not welcomed it uh, on the site, but there we are. But, uh, there are some things that, of course, that are not in here. And in particular, this, this vexed question, which UKRI slightly dodges as to whether PGRs are staff or students. This is an issue where this has been long long opposed by institutions making, making PGRs members of staff and granting them various employment rights. And UKRI doesn't say that they should be staff. They do their sit pretty uncomfortably in many ways in the sector and, and there will be some PGRs listening to this who feel fairly unloved and feel right at the heart of this kind of precariat and the casualization that we've been talking about before because despite the fact that actually their own personal stipends might be going up the funding they're working with the workload they're working under their ability to run and lead and support projects is tricky and I think it is it is fair in Jim's critique that actually the UKRI New Deal doesn't really touch on some of these broader issues. Just to be clear the, the stipend that was a historic announcement that, that was wasn't that wasn't new uh, this week? It's, it's kind of all, all the other stuff that's come with it. Debbie, what is that? What is that critique then? I mean, you know, as Jim's saying it's it's not a new deal. Yeah. What does it, well, what does it mean? mean? Jim is sort of you know characteristically irked about the uh, about what appears to be a sort of gap between what UKRI is saying, what OFS does in terms of regulating in the interest of students, kind of all students, 
and neither organisation is it seems to be sort of strong, strongly coming out with you know here's how we listen to the actual PGR voice and here's you know here and here and here's how we're responding to it. And I think the I mean I think that that point of the voice of PGR is, is well taken, but I think there's a sort of bigger structural challenge here about two organisations, both with a degree of responsibility for postgraduate researchers, have just a very very different objectives. You know, you know UKRI's focus is is about kind of the research ecosystem in general, making sure that that thrives. So you know this is partly about making sure that institutions are able to recruit you know you know recruit students and that they can kind of sort of serve the, serve the broader research agenda. So you know UKRI is interested in the kind of the pipeline into PGR. That the general research environment is sort of one that is one that is conducive to being able to kind of be you know be productive and and do that work. And then that you know given that inevitably not every postgraduate researcher is going to then be able to you know do a career in university research. That you know that that kind of pipeline back out again. And that's the kind of that's a sort of broad picture you know area area that you know you, that UKRI, UKRI is sort of thinking about it in that context of the wider thing. Of course, OFS is notionally responsible for things like you know the. Are are postgraduate researchers protected by consumer law and, and that sort of thing? But OFS sort of tends not to talk a great deal about that postgraduate research landscape and, and tends to be quite more focused on the teaching student, teaching students. So there is you know so PGRs do sort of fall between the gap and I think I think that's a real problem and clearly something that needs to be fixed. But it seems to me that it's, it just needs to be a kind of a working group that says you know who's responsible for what bit of it and and what are we going to do about these challenges and also how are we going to listen to those PGRs? I mean that seems to be just a thing a thing that is sorely needed and wouldn't actually be that difficult to. to to get underway it just seems like not beyond kind of you know the will of the sector to really tackle this question about whether pgrs are students or staff which is what a lot of this boils down to and you know which side Mm -hmm. of the fence the legislation the support the regulation literally everything kind of flows from i mean where where would you put them on Anne-Marie? i mean you know my charity works with about two thousand pgr folks every year and i guess what i've learned from working with uh, postdocs and postgraduate researchers for the past few years is there are 100,000 of them in the UK and they're a very diverse group in terms of their position on that question but a whole range of other things as well and so that's why i think jim's critique about listening is really important because i think the listening has to be much deeper and much broader for this particular cohort of folks so different institutions will have different perspectives so all the pgr individuals themselves i don't think it's really for me to to offer the final judgment there but at least you know the question is there in the report and i can see why the report's been popular it's something for everyone i think i thought it was a little bit light on researcher development i would have liked to have seen a lot more on researcher development i felt like there wasn't enough there in terms of how we're going to really help people to develop the skills outside of their sort of core research expertise for for what the job of tomorrow might hold so yeah i won't offer an arbitration on whether pgrs are are staff or students but i can see why the report has landed so well i think the problem is is that it sounds quite simple doesn't it sort of thing we just need to decide the problem is neither of those categories you know meaningfully address the pgr experience yeah debbie yeah because of course you know in the context of when you're teaching you know you are staff and and actually the the fact that you're a student means that as a teacher you can be kind of you know basically treated pretty badly in some cases and and you know the whole all the sort of process stuff that you would expect as an employee um, that doesn't doesn't really often doesn't really happen and the and this of course is why a lot of PGR sort of say well if, if only we were staff and we had employment contracts we would we would be treated better but you know, I'm not sure that if if as staff given that you are kind of learning and that the PhD is a sort of is an educational experience yes you're you know, yes you are contributing to research but it's not you know you know it's, it's not really kind of employed in that way and, and yeah it's, you know neither of those categories is sufficient possible to just say either or yeah 
I mean, I speak to a lot of PhD researchers who talk about this sense of, of being between two worlds, sort of being betweener or the chameleon of their institution. And so you're right, it's almost that that sort of space in between. And that's why it's hard to come down on either side, although people will make very strong arguments in, in both directions. I, think I mean, a lot of this links to the a lot of this links to the previous discussion exactly. we were just having about about the labour force. Because the truth is that the vast majority of current PGR students won't go on and have a lifetime in academia. They may stay in academia for a, for a sort of short period of time. They may go out. They may go out and then come back in again. But fundamentally, if you are a PG student, PGR in a university now, it's quite hard because the implicit assumption, certainly amongst people who've been sort of thinking about this for twenty years ago, was that this is this is the pipeline for the next generation of academia. And the truth is that it, that it is not for most of them because there's far more far more supply than there is demand so i do think we need to do a better job in a sense whether they're students or staff the answer is that they are both and neither but we do need as a sector and as institutions to support them for the fact that they may go on and do research for research aligned organization it might not be ukri funded research but they may well be doing research in their discipline or they may go on and do something entirely different and at the moment i worry that they're not really supported well to think about the pathways that most of them will probably go on and do and that's why I think the researcher development agenda has to be dialed up. So whatever comes of this report next, there needs to be a really clear approach around researcher development because it's spectacular in some places and less spectacular in others. I think, you know, PGRs probably deserve a better deal across the board on that front. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget, you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out how we can keep you and where you work ahead of everything that's going on in the UKHE, do head to the site and click subscriptions. So thanks very much to Jonathan and Marie, Debbie and Michael who makes the show happen. We'll be back next week. Until then, stay wonky. Stay wonky.